I have a confession to begin with this morning. I love cooking shows, and uh, <laughs> I know, right? So that's terrible, isn't it? But I, I like those shows that are the, the the reality cooking shows. You know, where they they don't know what they're going to cook, and I'm fascinated by that because I'm I cook a little bit and I'm such a recipe guy, and I don't understand how they. You know, they'll like whip off the, the, you know, the cover of the basket and there's a lobster and a, you know, a, a hot dog and an avocado or something. You know what I mean? And then they, so they have to make a dish and then they, you know, they jump right in. They start cooking. And I'm like, don't, you don't need anything written down because I, you know, I'm carefully measuring. That's a, I, I make the same salad dressing every week. And uh, I've probably made it for two years. I still use the recipe. And I'm like, I, I can never remember. Was it a half teaspoon or, you know, and so I'm always like tethered into the written deal. So when they're just throwing flour in and baking soda and talcum powder or whatever they're throwing in there, <laughs> I'm fascinated by that. And, it, and it's also fascinating for me that, you know, that, that when they pop it in the oven, how long they cook it for, and then the temperature, because those are the two important ingredients or the components of, of baking, right? You got to you know, put it in, you got to know, you know, what to set the dial to, and then how long you're going to leave it in there. My wife is an amazing uh, cook, home chef almost, I would say, and uh, she, even this morning, she um, tempts me by uh, making bacon. It's not on my diet, but, you know, bacon just has a, a, a way of of uh, tumbling even the strongest man and uh <laughs> but she bakes it in the oven she doesn't bake it in a skillet she puts it in the oven and and it always seems like it, there's this this intensity like if you leave it in there just a minute too long it's gonna you know turn too black or crunchy or whatever and certainly you don't want undercooked bacon and so you have to have that right temperature just at the right moment see i haven't gotten that yet i, I burn a lot of things i undercook a lot of things and uh and, and it's tough What's the point? Here's the point. Today, we're going to look at God, believe it or not, as the master chef. He knows exactly how long to turn up the heat. And he knows exactly how hot to turn it up uh, to, to, to the degree, to the perfect degree. And I'll tell you why. Because our God is a loving, perfect father that he won't undercook us, so to speak, and he won't overcook us. And when we're going through the test and the heat of life, it is very easy. We're fragile people that we can tilt in one direction or the other. Certainly in this uh, country, there is a leaning toward being undercooked. In other words, not wanting any heat at all in the spiritual life. That we only want it to be good. We only do what we want. We want to be trial free and test free. And Jesus teaches his disciples. Oh, no, that's not that's not what you would want to ask God for, because there are benefits to the length and the, the heat of the trials in our life. We come to a place in this prayer that Jesus is teaching his disciples. It's a very tricky passage because it. On the surface, it appears there's a lot of contradictions, but it requires us in those moments to dig a little bit deeper, to put our thinking caps on, to open up the hood and, and, and dive just a little deeper in. And I'll remind you that the reason that we're looking at what people normally refer to as the Lord's Prayer, we've called it the Disciples Prayer, is that because Jesus prayed often, and I would say that I would even venture to say that when Jesus came back from prayer, that it's not sacrilegious to say that he was sweaty. He sweated in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed with such urgency and such passion that there's indicators to us that, that this is why the disciples not just asked him to pray, but how do you pray like that? And the reason that we've taken so many weeks to go through all the components of this prayer is that the hope and the intent of this collection is that your prayer life will be broadened, be expanded, because it's such an area in our life that should be common, but I hear all the time, I just don't know what to pray for. And I, I run out of things to pray. I've heard it, I've heard it hundreds of times. I, I, I only pray about seven minutes, and then I, I don't know what to say. And for that reason, Jesus is still teaching us not to how to say this prayer in rote, by rote, but how to add these components in, in our life. And, 
And so each week we've taken a different component, a different ingredient of this prayer and hopefully given you enough that you could say, okay, now I understand how to pray the names of God or at least begin and that will en en enrich that part of your, your prayer life. Or now I know how to, to pray tribally as we began this prayer, our Father, not just my Father, how I pray for others and, and so on. And now I'll remind you again, that this is a disciple prayer, not a believer's prayer, especially you'll see that today. What I mean by that is that a believer in Christ is, is secure in, in, with heaven in mind, eternity in mind, but not so interested in growing and pushing and advancing. That's far different from a disciple because we can be either. We can say, look, I got, I, I'm safe. I'm secure. I'm going to heaven. That's, that's beautiful. I just, I, I'm good with that. But Christ is looking for disciples that are willing to do whatever to lose their life so that they can advance the kingdom of Christ against the kingdom of darkness. It's a real, this is not a game. It's a reality that they're willing to tackle the tough issues, willing to lean forward. And I believe that that is why the disciples said, teach us to pray like that, because we're just kind of minimizing it. And for that reason, we find ourselves now in this part of the prayer that that is a very serious consideration today. Are, are you a disciple or are you a believer? And this is a, a part in this prayer that, as they say, would separate the men from the boys. We find ourselves in Matthew 6 again, where this prayer is one of the places where this prayer is listed. And, uh, as I said, this is a, this is a tricky passage. So we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna dive a bit deeper today. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13, you'll recognize these words that Christ taught the disciples. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, right off the bat, before we dig deep, just my logic says, no, that's odd. Why would I ask a loving father to not lead me into temptation? Why would he lead me into temptation? Why would I lead my own children? Hey, watch this on TV. This is, let me, let me see if you fall on this one. Why would I do that as a dad? That just doesn't make sense. But it doesn't make sense even when you begin to compare scripture verses with scripture verses that that we would be asking God to not lead us into temptation because we're going to take that part of the prayer first. For example, in James chapter 1 and verse 13, here's what, here's what the Bible says. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So since he doesn't tempt anyone... Why would I ask him? Why would I even take the time to say, then, God, please don't lead me into temptation? Then we turn back to the Old Testament when God had an intersection with Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 22, we read these words. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. Like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Now, from the outside in, this is where those who don't believe the Bible said, see, there's plenty of contradictions in the Bible. This doesn't line up. But there is an answer to it. There always is if you're willing to dig deep enough. So when we look at the fact that our logic tells us that why would God so loving even lead us into temptation? So why would we ask for that? When we read that he doesn't even tempt us in the first place. And then we see where Abraham was tempted. And then we think about Christ when he was beginning his ministry we're asking God not to lead us into temptation. And yet Matthew chapter 4 verse 1 says Jesus was led by God, led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Are you confused enough now? Perfect. We'll see you next week. Hope you figure that out. <laughs> it's a little shaky. So often we, at this intersection, we're required as disciples, not believers, but required as disciples to say, let me dig into that. And let me look at, at what's underneath that. And so often you, we go back to the original language. Now, when you look at the original language, so often it's the English language that we're so, that we're, that we're operating here in, the, the English language system that is, is not 
sufficient to express something. We've talked about it before. Let's take an example of the word love. In English, it means so many things. But in the Greek language, there are three uh, ways to express the word love. There are three separate words for love. And it's, and the New Testament really helps us out. Like, oh, you're talking about brotherly love there. Oh, you're talking about a more eternal divine love there. And so it's very clear. The odd thing about this is it's reversed. It's actually that the, the original word is insufficient in its, in, 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 in its way to explain. And so it's the English language that uses two. Let me, let me explain what I mean. In the, in the Greek language, the word for um, temptation is perosmos. I think I did a better job at that than I did the first uh, 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 service. I think I cussed in Greek or something. But at any rate. And it really has a dual meaning. And as you'll see as we unfold the word today, the duality of this word is brilliant. Now you may think, okay, it's a little bit dry and a little bit boring. It's not. There's a depth here that's in the word that you'll miss it if, if you don't dig. So uh, this word has two meanings. First of all, to try the strength of. In other words, to put to the test to see how some, something can hold up. And then the other side of what we're normally used to is to entice to do evil. It means both of those things which make things confusing. Now, as a sidebar, let me just say this for a second. I'll get back to where we're at, but I'm going to, I'm, I'm now doing a sidebar so you'll know I'm, I'm stepping out, out of the line. Now, when you hear this kind of conversation and me say, now the original Greek is this, that, and the other. Here at 360, one of our, if you're kind of new, one of our, I would say, core heartbeat passions here is that we look at predicaments and we try to tackle them. If you look at the Christian culture at large, there are predicaments, there are problems, there are issues. And, and there, I could, I can name a few. For example, one of them is that, that we have identified as being inauthentic, which means we're out in the community as churches. It's well, you know, it's kind of common to be doing stuff out there, but right on row four, I, I, Mike is dying and he's going through the roughest time in his life, but we're busy out there, but we're not right here caring for one another. It's a break of authenticity. There's a break in, uh, and there's a predicament of discipleship. We talk about that a lot. One-to-one -one discipleship. It's very, very rare if you don't know in the Christian culture. And it shouldn't be that way. Yesterday I was with a men's group. And we talked about the deficit of male, true male, strong, courageous, transparent, serving male leadership in the church culture. So each of these these predicaments, we say, let's tackle them then with a strategy and, and not just talk about them and say, oh, how bad it is and all that. But let's let's put a strategy, whether we have it perfect or not. At least we're swinging towards these issues. We're developing men, male leaders. We took seven years to write a one to one discipleship track We're 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 tackling. So one of the one of the predicaments in the Christian culture, which is in our American culture, is consumerism. That means I go to a Bible study and Mr. Bible teacher looks up all the Greek words because he's super smart and I'm not and I wouldn't even know, I don't even know how to say it. And so you do all the work, you spoon feed me and I'll write all the notes. It's consumerism and we fight against that. So therefore, in our discipleship track called Exchange, what we do is teach you how to study the Bible. Now, I would like to tell you that what I've just said to you, that I, I said to you because I'm so brilliant. I'm so fluent with the Greek language that just ask me any word. Mosquito, I'll tell you what it is in Greek. I'm not. Because what I'm trying to downplay here in this little sidebar is that I'm no smarter than you. I'm just like you. It doesn't make me any spiritual because I can mispronounce a Greek word. And what I'm saying is don't put anyone on a pedestal, including me, because you can dive into the word of God just like anybody else does. And we talk about this in our discipleship and they're wonderful uh, uh, right at your fingertips like BibleHub.org uh, or StudyLight.net. Uh, I mean, there's some great websites. This past week, I showed our worship pastor, Clay, uh, this book. It's called Explore the Book. It was written by a guy in the early part of the 1900s. He's an Australian guy. Unbelievable book. It literally is about three to four inches thick. And with tears in my eyes, I held it up to him. I said, see what this is? This is pre-computer. These guys, they poured it out pre-computer. And yet right at our fingertips, we can study and dig. So listen, 
when it comes to tough passages like this in the scripture, and I'll get back, I'll get off my high horse and my soapbox here for just a second. When it comes to this, hey, you can study if you are a disciple. You're a learner. You're a teacher. Don't depend on me to do it. So next week, we're going to take turns. You get up here. and no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just don't want to put myself on a pedestal or anybody else. And I don't want you to become a consumer. You understand? So don't be mystified by like, oh, he knows the Greek language. I don't. I didn't. I, I, I don't. I, that part of the seminary is like, oh, boy, it's a, it's a pain because it, 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 for a lot of reasons, whatever. <laughs> All right. I'm back. When we look at this duality, we're going to unfold this today because it's beautiful and brilliant. And when you start studying the word of God, it's like a diamond, man. You turn it and it's like, oh, that angle is so is so gorgeous. So we're going to talk about the tests of God. Now, let me just clear something off the desk before we get going. What I'm not talking about today is the consequence of human Let's just call it what it is, stupidity. I, in other words, in life, there are things that we're going through perhaps just because we've caused them. Just, the, just three blocks from here, just three weeks ago, I was in my car. I was in a rush. I was driving too fast. I took a corner right in front of Sarasota Middle School, and I went slightly off the road. And when I hit that corner, I came back on the road. And when I came back on the road, the, the pavement was, there was a chunk out of it. And my front right tire went, king, just right, right into that. And in my mind, that instant, I thought, dude, that could like blow your tire out. 50 feet later, I'm out looking at my blown out tire. That was a consequence of dumb, dumb here, driving too fast and taking a curve too wide. See, I can't throw that one on the God and say, hey, how come that happened? He's like, because you're driving too fast. Now let's go to the next level, Steve. We're not talking about those things today. We're talking about those God-appointed moments as a loving father that he would send and deliver a test or a trial our way. Now, sometimes they're microwave. They only last a short amount of time. Sometimes they're long baking trials, are they not? One of the things that we begin with today is this truth. And it's an odd truth, but it's a, I believe that it's a reality. And the truth is that if the test is God-ordained, God controls the length and the heat, the temperature. The reason that we can find comfort in that and not anger in that is that it comes from a loving father. Watch. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. We're going to hit this verse in a couple of different ways today. But here's what we find. Watch. God is faithful and he will not let you be tested beyond what you can bear. That means his hand is on the lever of how much. In other words, he said he will not allow it to go so far. That means he is in control of it. You remember the book of Job. When Job, when Satan approached uh, God and says, I, I, I want to have at it at Job. God said, you can do this and this. I will allow you to do this and this, but not this. You cannot kill him. You That is hands off. In other words, God was part of the barometer of that test in that moment. And so when we look at, at, at this passage, what we find out is that he is there and this is the meaning of the prayer. If we took it literally, the words of this prayer, when we say lead us not into temptation, really mean this. Lead me not into a trial more than I can handle. Christ is reminding us in prayer that God, the master chef, knows how long and how hot to bake. And we're reminding ourselves in prayer, Father, that's the opening of the prayer. I trust you that I know that you can control all things. And I know that there is a reason, and we'll look at some of them today. I know that there is a reason why you have your hand in this, and it will be a perfect reason. It will be a much needed reason. It will be a loving reason. And as human beings, 
You know as well as I do, that's tough. It's tough to see that perspective. Now, let me give you a, a, an example. You remember when the Israelites were captive for over 400 years in the, in the land of Egypt, and they were treated with just this awful cruelty. And, they, and God was leading them out. But watch what happens in Exodus chapter 14, verse 13. Um, that's actually a misprint uh, on the screen, by the way. Uh, I, somebody, oh, there it is. My tech guys are so on it. Exodus 13, chapter 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. In other words, scholars tell us, which you can find on the internet, scholars tell us that it would have only taken two to three weeks to get to the promised land had he led them through the Philistine country. You see, when you're coming through a trial and God doesn't lead you the shorter direction, probably the more paved direction, it's easy for us to say, God, I don't get this. How come you can't make this shorter, this sickness shorter, this financial breakdown shorter, being single shorter? How come this trial, whatever it is, how come it can't be shorter? You've asked that question, I'm sure. And behind the scenes, God says, don't forget, I am a master chef and nothing escapes the details in my brilliant mind. If you were standing there right now and you knew the area, like, I think God's GPS is broken. We could have gone a shorter way. It'd been much better. But God says, no, 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 no. There's a reason for it, a loving reason. For God said to himself, if they face war, if they went through the Philistine country, they may change their mind and return to their awfulness, which they proved over and over that they were so fragile they would have. And if they returned there, it would be terrible. So watch, here's the word. So God led them. Lead me not into a trial more than I can handle. So God led them, led the people around, watch, by the desert road. To the Red Sea, towards the Red Sea. Wait a minute. I wanted the paved road. I wanted the shorter road. Why am I on this desert road? And God would say, because my love is perfect. I'm your father. That's why I chose the desert road. You know what? Let's just be honest. The desert road stinks. Nobody. It's not on a travel log. Trevago. Is that what it's called? Something like that. Thank you. <laughs> Help me out anytime. I take it. Was that is that Greek? <laughs> Sorry. It's not on the it's not on the travel log, and it's not on your intended travel log when you come across the desert road. Like ah man, I didn't plan for this. Of course you didn't. No one's plans for it because we didn't plan for it. Then we began to ask why. And the message that I hope sinks into your mind and heart. And the fragile wills that we often have is this. That God is not asleep at the will. That if you're on a desert road and it happens to be longer. That God is very, very in tune. So let's look at some of the reasons why God may be putting you through a test. Maybe right now. Maybe it was last week, last year, a year from now. Here's the first reason. God would put us through a test because it reveals our heart. Now, again, you have to keep reminding yourself this is coming from a loving father. He doesn't want to reveal our heart. He knows it. He wants us to know it. So they can say, aha, I knew you were greedy. Aha. That's not, that's not love. You see, given to ourselves, we'll give ourselves an attaboy for the things that we do well. I'm a fairly temperate person. I could congratulate myself that I don't fly off the handle. It just happens to be a quality that I, that I have. So I could live the rest of my life and say, you know what? I've got temperance down. I am doing good. God would say, not so fast, Steve. How's your patience? Not so fast, Steve. Southern boy. How's your courage? You're so easy and so ready to be a gentleman. Would you be willing to speak truth to others to be bold enough because I want to grow that. So here's what I'm going to do. God would say, I love you enough 
to put you in a test so that the, so that those weak places in your life begin to surface so that you can be working on them because when you're starting to work on them, you're not working on the good parts. Who needs work on the good parts? You're working on those parts that are weaker. And when you work on your weaker parts, you become a greater person. You become more effective. And that's because I love you. He's so brilliant. I don't want to live the rest of my life trial free. Because those weaker moments are going to stay buried and not exposed so that I can tackle them or have others help me tackle them or certainly God help me tackle them. So you remember Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a a good king in the nation and the history of Israel. And at near the end of his life, there were, there was an envoy that came, some, some, from a foreign country, and they were tricking Hezekiah. They wanted to see what was in the temple. And, and God says, I wonder if Hezekiah understands that he is complacent. He's less vigilant now with the, the precious things of God. It can happen to all of us, whether it's prayer or our finances or the, the word of God or the, the, the gospel of sharing. We can kind of get complacent with those valuable things of God. And so here's what God did in, in Second Chronicles chapter 32, verse 31. Hezekiah, th- these are the words that, w- that were said. God left Hezekiah to test him, to know everything that was in his heart. In other words, he stepped back. You know, we, we do that with our kids. We, we, our kids or our boys are getting to the place that we can leave home a little bit. But boy, we just tested it at first. We say, okay, let's leave them at home and let's take a walk and we'll see. So we walked about a half a block and we came back, you know, just to test it, see if anything had burned down, any broken noses, you know, anything like that. We're like, okay, that worked pretty well. Now we can walk like three blocks. Your parents, you know this, you, you never know. There is no right moment, but you're testing it. So, you know, we, we actually went to lunch last week. We're like, this is amazing. And, and we're, but you're nervous the entire time. And, the, and you, you, we took about four or five phone calls during lunch too. But it's, it, we're te- and God said, let me step away and see. Unfortunately, he failed the test. But fortunately, Hezekiah, he came to realize, ah, what was I doing? Without the test, I wouldn't have seen it. But I needed it, he would say. Watch this, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Here's another one. We've seen this passage over the last few weeks a number of times. God giving a post game on why he put them in the desert and why he was feeding them from from heaven with manna. He says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you, watch, and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. You see, Job was self-righteous, but he could have lived the rest of his life not dealing with that until he was given the test and it was revealed in the test. You remember David who had a heart for God, but he also had a heart for women in a wrong way. And God put him in a test. He left them there all by himself. And he had to test him to show him. And he brought David to his knees in a fresh and new way where he said, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation because I had lost it, the joy of it. And I didn't even realize it until I was put through the test. You remember Peter? Peter was self-confident. He thought, oh, nothing's going to happen to us. God, you're, Jesus, you're not going to the cross. And, and, and Christ had to address that and dress him down. And at the end of his life, Peter said, uh, you know, Jesus' life, he said, Peter, he said to Jesus, hey, I'll never deny you. I'm so confident that I'll never deny you. And he had to put him through the fire to say, wow, maybe my faith is not as strong as it could be. And as a result of that test, Peter got stronger And was a mighty voice to the entire world of Gentiles because he was willing to go through that test. You see, God reveals those things so that we can deal with them. You remember the Macedonians, perhaps, in the New Testament. They were were tested with poverty and they passed with flying colors. It was a group of people that were tested and they they were just bare bones finances and they begged Paul for the privilege of giving they passed the test there are tests of poverty there are tests of riches and I would venture to say that in our country the test of wealth is much more dangerous than the test of poverty I've been to a number of countries and those who live in poverty are much more hungry for God just saying 
the more comfortable we get, the more we find our sufficiency in, in things, the less we look for God. Solomon was tempted this way. The rich young ruler was tempted this way. And yet there were others like Lydia, who is a wealthy uh, business person, and she passed with flying colors. So what's being said here is God, in the test, ready for the duality, in the test, don't let me flip over to the temptation. Don't let me flip over for the temptation of losing this trial. Don't let me flip over to the temptation of saying, God, I don't like this trial and I'm angry with you. That's like, oh no. See, there's the duality. You got that. You start with a test, but it turns in to the temptation. That's the, that's the beauty of the prayer. And so watch first Peter first, um, chapter one, verse six. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come. Why, Peter? So that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. You know, as well as I do, you've probably heard it a lot of times, that when they're heating up gold, another to, to make it pure, they, they have to heat it up. My favorite preacher, Tony Evans, says it this way. You don't know what's in the tea bag unless you have hot water. You put a tea bag in cold water, nothing barely comes out. You have to have the water hot enough. And God knows exactly what that is for you and for me. We probably have different levels of tolerance. You may be higher, lower than me, but God knows exactly what it is. So God, first of all, brings tests into our lives to reveal our hearts so we can work on those things. Here's a second one. Don't have to spend a lot of time on this. When we have a test, a test reminds us of our dependency on God. I don't know about you, but this might be the most subtle temptation that I face as a disciple. That I somehow kind of just drift. Well, have you ever sw swam in the ocean where, you know, especially on the East Coast, where you start at one place and you're there in front of your motel, you know, and then everybody's having fun doing bouncy balls and blah, blah, blah. And you come out and you're like, I don't know where I'm at. It just subtly, you've drifted, you know, about 18 hotels down from, from where you started. Kind of messes with your mind. And I find myself this way. I'm like, I'm not sure that I, I myself, if I really take inventory, and as I like to say, umbilically, umbilically dependent on God. And it can happen with our life. So when these tests come in, like in Psalm 46, we're reminded that in these tests, God is our refuge and our strength an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and it goes on, the mountain be thrown into the sea and on and on. When the bottom drops out, we're not. We're going to depend on God. This is exactly what happened with Moses. He was cornered to the Red Sea. You know the story. Nowhere to go. Not left, not right, not backwards, not forwards. The enemy closing in on him. And he said to the people the same thing in Psalm 46. Be not afraid. Do not be fearful because God is with us. He understood that dependency on God in the moment of that test. He said in Exodus chapter 14, I think, or 13. They'll straighten it out on the screen. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. So we need tests at times to say, Ah, oh, man, I haven't really been calling out on God. Do you pray more when you're in a test or when you're not in a test? Point proven. Enough said. Now, if you're a loving father, by the way, and the only time your child, Mike or Bob or Sam or, or Laura, whoever, whoever it is we're talking about, if the only time they talk to you is in a test, what are you going to do? I think I must send another text. Attest to them because I haven't talked to them in a while. You see, God's trying to say, man, don't forget how much you're dependent. Finally, here's a, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons, but the one final one for us today is a little bit more involved. And here's, here, here it is. Test cause us to move forward if they're handled in the right way. This thing about being a disciple is all about forward motion. I don't care where you work, your employer, 
expects forward motion, progress. I want to see what you've done at the end of the day or end of the week. Perhaps you're the employer. Perhaps you own a business. You want to see those people underneath you uh, who work for you. They, you want to see progress. And at the end of the year, you want to see progress on the bottom line if you, if you own your business. If you're an athlete, you, you want to see progress. If you're lifting weights like I do, I'm, I'm moving now from bench pressing like 450. And Mike, <laughs> what? All right, it's 20. But, <laughs> but, but whatever that is, you're, you know, I keep it on my phone. I'm like, here's where I'm at. I'm pressing to get to the next level. And then sometimes it's a little scary. For years and years, I taught piano lessons. You expect Johnny to come in and have advanced somehow on the piano skill, right? God expects that from disciples. This, there's an expectation that God has that, man, you've got to be moving forward. And sometimes, many times, quite frankly, God wants to move us forward, but he's got to turn up the heat a little bit in order for that to happen. So why would we ever pray, God, don't give me a trial? Why would the American Christian culture fall for any message that would say God just wants it to be cool and easy for you? Because God would never do that. He loves you too much because he wants you to grow and be chiseled and be um, uh, sharpened and, 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 and to be developed and to be juicy and mature and ripe. And in order to do that, he's got to use these trials. Watch James chapter one says it so clearly. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kind. Now, we know how odd that is. That is so illogical to us. Yippee! I'm having a trial. Who, who says that? Unless you take off one set of lenses and you put another set of lenses and you look through the eyes of a perfect father. Consider it pure joy. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It is the very heartbeat of our discipleship track because we realize that every single person has strengths and weaknesses and those weaknesses are not to be left behind and in a typical church culture, we don't even talk about them. But in discipleship, we're going to dig down deep, open up the hood, get out the tools, get down there and work. Because the goal is spiritual maturity and completion. So I draw, I drew, came, uh, uh, brought today a, a, a picture. Let's say this represents your whole life. Um, and, and there are probably a million, and these are tests. There are probably 1,200 instead of 12, but they wouldn't fit on the screen. So be readable. So this, this is your whole life. And God is saying, man, I want you to advance and I'm going to use tests to see if you can pass before you move on. So let's say right now in your life, you're, you're, you're at, at level three and that's where you're at. We're all different levels sitting in this room. And you, and you say, so God is not going to move me to level four unless I pass the, the, the heat and the test of level three. That's exactly what I'm saying. You see, Abraham was asked to do a, a huge test. It was about up to 248 level, right? The heat was hot. Abraham, I want your son. And I want you to lay him on this altar. I want you to take his life. And God, of course, stopped him before they did it. But he saw Abraham's willingness. And right at that moment, God said, now I know. Now I know you've passed this level. Now I can take you to the next level. Now we'll begin the nation out of it because you gave me this one boy. You were willing to become this one. Give me this one boy. Now we can start a whole nation. Here's the reason why. Not because God is standing there saying, you're not going to get to, to uh, number four unless you get to number three. He's got some attitude. No, he wouldn't let you go to level four without testing you at level three because you'll get wiped out at level four if you're not ready at level three. That is a loving father. He's, oh, trust me. He's like, oh, I can't wait till he gets to level four. It's going to be exciting. Oh, it's going to be hard. It's going to be great. Oh, it's going to be hot. It's going to be long. But man, when he gets there, see, we'll begin to work at this level. This is a loving father to a disciple. Whatever we're working on, God said, man, I, I want that in his life. Watch 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 10, verse 13. No testing has overtaken you that is common to everyone. Everyone, everyone faces it. 
God is faithful. He would not let you be tested beyond your own strength or what you can bear. But that testing, he'll also provide a way out so that you may be able to, careful, to endure it. Notice that he doesn't say he'll provide a way out so you can escape it. Why would he? There's a benefit in this test. In other words, what is he providing a way out? He's providing a way out of the test so that it doesn't turn into a temptation. He's providing a way out of the temptation of you like, man, I want out. I want out. Oh, no, 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 no. Stay in. Because any of us would want to move from from level three to level 12 right away. I know I do. Man, I want the big stuff, right? I've had, uh, uh, gosh, hundreds if not thousands of people that have come to me and said, man, I want to play the rock Monoff piece. I'm like, dude, you can't even play a Bach minuet, which is down here, level one, right? I had this piano student. His name was Don. Don was a retired pharmacist. And he was, in all the years I taught, I taught for many, many years, all the years I taught, by far the grouchiest man that I've ever met in my life. He's about 70 years old, and uh, he would come to his lessons. He came to his first lesson. I'm like, let me hear you play. And he just just trashed whatever piece he was playing. And he had this huge piece by Brahms, the composer Brahms. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, dude, this is like level 116. And honestly, you're down here at level two. I could not convince Don that he wasn't ready for this piece. And every time I say, you know, Don, what we might say, I'm going to play this piece. I'm like, oh, well, let's play this piece. You know, every time he would bite my head off. And then he would start to play and literally spend 15 minutes on the first measure. Because his fingers just, you know, like for one note, it was, it was just excruciating. I'm like, play it, Don. Play it. Play it now. And it would be like, going all the wrong notes. And I'm like, Don, maybe what you, I got it. He would not let me teach him at all. So it was 30 minutes of paid babysitting. Like, good job again, Don. Like, all of us want to play the Brahms and skip the Bach minuet. You get what I'm saying? All of us want to fast track it. Did you hear the story this week about the guy in Canada who was traveling on the highway? And, you know, you got the HOV lanes, the high occupancy vehicle lanes, where you have to have so many people in your car because they're trying to move traffic. And if you only have one person in your car, you know, in the fast lane, then they fine you. In Canada, it's $85 to be fined. So this guy said, oh, I got an idea then. I, I, I want to travel in the fast lane, and I want to get there fast, but I, I want to take my own shortcut. So so this was the picture that, uh, so he bought some mannequins, <laughs> and he uh, put, put them in his car. The problem is he got busted uh, for it because the, 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 the policeman, you know, were coming by and said, those don't look like real people. He pulled them over. But the good thing is that they were in their seat belts. That's, uh, that's always a good thing. <laughs> The strange thing is that the fine is 85 bucks, but each of these mannequins costs $350. Insert Canadian joke here. I'm sorry. <laughs> Easy. All right. So uh, there you have it. So all of us want to take our, we have our little tricks around the fast lane. We want to get to the fast lane, right? And God said, no, you got to stay in. You got to endure it. In fact, pray. That you won't fall into the temptation of praying, God, just let me out of this trial because you're not the chef. He is. You'll burn the bacon or undercook the chicken. That sounds like a good t-shirt to me. (laughs) James chapter 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, not run from it. Not who begs for an escape, who perseveres. Because see... At the end of your life, every disciple will stand by him or herself in front of Jesus. That's what is what is called the Bema Seat of Christ. Not to determine whether you're going to heaven or hell, but to stand in front of Christ and take inventory of how you lived your life on this earth as a disciple or a believer. He said, in that moment, blessed will be the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, He will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So when you look at this, what what Peter is uh, or James is uh, painting here is this picture of level 12, that this is what God wants, but he won't skip a step. What will break God's heart is if we show up before Christ and we've asked to get out of the trials. And so our life ends up looking more 
like that. Don't run from them. You don't have to. Because there's a chef who's got his fingers right on the clock and right on the gauge. You don't have to run from him. He's right with you. Now let's just take a quick look as we close at the second half of this prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, if that phrase, deliver us from evil, stood on its own, it could mean, God, protect me from the enemy, protect me from the darkness and everything, and that's all well good, that's all true. But see, it's coupled here. And lead me not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And there's a, there's a reason why it's, it, it's coupled. What is being said here is, is literally these words. Lead me not into a trial more than I can handle. And rescue me from the temptation of allowing the test to turn me to evil. You see, when you think about evil, and I've asked a few people this this week. What do you think is at the core of evil? One person said to me, I was just kind of feeling it out and formulating these thoughts. And one person said, hatred, that's at the core of evil. I, I wouldn't disagree with that. I forget, somebody, somebody had another, maybe darkness or something like that. But when you look at the, the inception of evil, you have to go back to Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. These are very complex passages that our enemy, Satan, who was in heaven called Lucifer, he before Adam was even created, we began to see what evil really looks like. And in those passages, five times, Lucifer began, evil began to brew in his heart. And in the, those moments, Lucifer said, I will ascend to the throne. I will be equal to God. Five times, I is there. I, 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 I. My proposal to you is at the core of evil is self. On the flip side of that, if you compare those passages to Christ in Philippians 5, ironically, there are five steps down for him. Even though I am equal with God, even though he's equal with God, I will not grasp, I will not hold on to that, but I will make myself into the form of a servant. I will humble myself. I will be obedient to death, even the death of a cross. There are five steps down of selflessness that Christ said, let me tell you what the opposite of evil is. So when I think of this passage and think, I believe that Christ is saying, pray that, that you won't be in a temptation that is too hot for you, that you would turn to selfish thinking. That how come this is happening to me? How come it didn't happen to her? She deserves it a lot more than I do. It becomes selfish and then it becomes evil. Deliver me, God, from my boat flipping in the test to the temptation of being completely selfish. We're fragile in that way. God, how come he's got more than I do? How come I got to go through poverty? How come everything seems so rosy in that family, which is probably not, and it's not over here in my family? You see, there's this, this sense, I believe, in this, 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 um, th this prayer that Christ is saying, is, be careful in the test that it doesn't turn to self. How come it would be that, that in this time of testing, have you ever seen this? It's happened to me. Maybe it's happened to you. That the test becomes consuming. That's all I can talk about. Oh, that's all the person's talking. Every time you see them, oh, this, we're talking about your deal again. In a small group, there, there, we're talking about your deal again. Christ said, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than you. The test is more powerful than you. It's whatever you're going through, it's, it, it, it's about growing you, but it never stops there. And so this is why James says, oh, consider it pure joy because God is working through you. God loves you. God is right there. He's the master chef. Don't let it turn selfish, but let it turn into praise. Let it turn into glory. Let it turn into joy. And it's like, boy, that just goes everything against my human logic. But you have to take all these lenses of human logic and put on the lenses of, of God. Watch this. John chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus said, I'm the true fine and my loving, perfect, good father is the gardener. 
You see, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. He's like, this is not going to be worth anything. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So many people, they're going through a test and they think, I must have done something wrong. I must have really blown it. That's what the whole book of Job was about. I talked to a man who's retired, retirement age, but he had lost everything today, right? Standing there. He said, I was in Starbucks. And um, he, this friend of mine came up and said uh, to me, knowing that I'd lost my job, the first thing out of his mouth is, what have you done wrong? What have you done wrong? And if we're honest, we've asked ourselves that question when we look in the mirror. Something's not going right. I've asked it too many times. What did I do wrong here? How come? And just I can wallow in the selfishness of my own guilt. If we confess our sins, God, our Father, is faithful and just and will forgive every single sin so we can clear it off the table and say, okay, God, now what are we doing? Because you're not one that's just going to hold it over my head or else you're not the God I think you are and I know him not to be that way. He's doing something more for his glory. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6, though for a little while now you have to suffer griefs and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater work that worth than gold, which perishes, um, though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. Watch this. And may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Won't it be great when we're standing in heaven and we see Abraham step up to the plate and God said, way to go. You didn't run. You didn't become selfish. But you had hung in there and you did what I want to do. And millions were blessed because of you. Couldn't that be your life? Wouldn't that be your life? That God, that you look at it. And, and when God looks at it at the end, it's like, man, way to go. You hung in through the test. So this past week, one of our sons was building, uh, doing some Legos. You know, you, you go to the store and you, you, you buy those Lego kits, like boats and, and things like that. And then they build them and then they take them apart and then they throw them in a big bucket. You know, and then you got this massive collection of, of Legos. So then the cool thing is that they become creative. So I, I walked in this week and this was the creation that he had made. Just layers of, of columns and platforms. And it got me to thinking, I wonder if we're kind of like this. That at the end of our life, we could look back and we would say, gosh, every, every part of our life was put together by a master builder. Now, some of those are strong columns. Some of those are fragile layers. And as you know, if you have had any uh, child build a Lego thing or whatever it is, they're fragile. And they often fall apart. And, and that happened this week. And, and it fell apart. And, and my wife texted me and said, hey, I, didn't you take a picture of that? And I said, I did take a picture of it. Can you send it? Are you ready? Can you send it home so that we can rebuild what it looked like, what it was supposed to look like. Listen carefully. There are people sitting in this room that are desperate to know what it looks like to be put back together again for those who are willing to endure a test so that you can send them a picture of what it looks like so that at the end of their life they can stand before Christ. Isn't that selfless? Maybe your trial for someone else I can't tell you I can't tell you the people who have helped me who are who when I'm at level three and they're already at level six and say well let me let me tell you you're gonna be all right <laughs> you're gonna be all right the people that that have put their arms around me my friend Bob Rodenbach turns 90 this week, 90 years old. He still looks 60 in my book, man. Years ahead of me, decades ahead of me. And when my father was killed in a car accident, it was that 90-year-old man that put his arm around me and said, I'll be your dad. And I'll show you what, I'll show your kids what it means to have a granddad. And he has. They needed a picture. 
They need a picture of a man who's been through World War II. They need a picture of a man who's been through the Great Depression. They need a picture of a man who's seen the American culture change and endure it. They need a picture of a man who comes to his pastor on a regular basis and whispers in my ear, hold the line, Steve, hold the line. See, our tests are not just about us. In fact, so often they're not. We look at the, we look at this picture of these Legos and so at the end of our life, oh, it would be so easy to look like, oh, I remember that one. That was, that was fragile. That part right there, level three, dude, that was fragile. And that would be easy. But while we're on that level, it's hard to see that there is a loving master chef. But he is. And let me close with these words to prove what I've just said. Mind-blowing. David in Psalm 139 prayed this prayer to God. He said, God, your eyes beheld my unformed body. That means when I was in my mother's womb, I was still in a fetus stage before there were any features, before there were any fingers, before my mind, my brain was developed, my eyes, my eyelashes, God. Before I had even taken the Lego parts out of the box, God. Before you, my, you beheld my unformed body, in your book, what, what, I'm sorry, there's a book. There's a record. A detailed record. And it goes far beyond a terabyte. In your book, God, were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them as yet even existed. We have a master chef that is intimately in tune with every test, degree, and length of your life. Listen, you can trust him. You can trust him. Father, how do we even put into words, God? How blown our minds are when we recognized, when we recognize and embrace the reality that every single day of ours is written in a book. At the end of our life, when we read that story, we'll recall those moments, those tests. Oh, I remember that. And it will be much easier than God because we'll have known the outcomes and we'll have gone through these. But you know, God, how fragile we are that on those long desert roads, we question. We ask God, why? We ask, why me? And today, God, you have revealed to us the reason that Jesus Asks us to remind ourselves that you have your fingers on the temperature and the clock. That you are loving. That you have the best God intentions. That you want through these intersections. These deltas where tests and temptations come together. That these tests are used to reveal the things that in the, our lives where we need to grow. God, thank you for that. That these tests for us, God, remind us of our umbilical dependency on you. God, thank you for that. We need it. That these tests, God, bring forward motion. They cause us to advance. That you won't put us at a test where we can't past because we haven't gone through the current one. Yes, God, thank you for that. Thank you for caring enough about us not to stick us in level four when we're, all, we're, we're still working through level three. May we say to you, God, 
What an amazing father you are. As odd as it would seem to the culture around us. We simply say to you, God, thank you for the tests. Thank you for loving us enough for the tests. Help us, God. Help us, God, to not beg you for escape, but to ask you for your endurance, knowing that you have perfect timing. We can trust you in asking. Help us to endure, God, for selfless reasons that we would not fall into the temptation of the core of evil of selfishness, but we would be selfless in our trials. We would be selfless to the point that knowing that our trial may be the very picture of what someone else needs to see. That the endurance that you give to us is the exact thing that has broken down in them. And they just simply need a picture of someone who has endured. And at the end of our life, God, may the endurance truly be an act of worship given to you. For your glory. We pray it God. In the name of Christ. Amen.